how do you mitigate your risk? Montel's forecasting services cover risks from hours ahead to years ahead. We welcome you to hedge your market exposure with our diverse forecasting portfolio. Contact us at salesatmontelnews.com for more info and a free trial. Hello listeners and welcome to the Monte Weekly Podcast, bringing energy matters in an informal setting. Today, we're talking the mess that is Brexit. It seems every day we hear something new and the 1st of January deadline is looming. Helping me to untangle the confusion is Anthony Froggitt, who's Senior Research Fellow at Chatham House. A warm welcome to you, Anthony, and welcome back on the pod. Thank you very much. It's always good to have a chat about these things. Absolutely. So where are we at the moment? Well, where's, where's the state of play, Anthony? It all seems to be, from the outside anyway, seems to be very confusing. Yeah. I mean, I think probably from the inside, it's probably confusing as well. But I mean, I guess what's different probably maybe from the last time we spoke was obviously COVID. And that has obviously changed the political spotlight in some ways on Brexit. So the negotiations have been affected by it materially in terms of people, the ability to meet up. And there was a case of COVID in one of the negotiating teams last week, which slowed and stopped things. But it's also, yeah, there's just less political attention, I think, on it and less media attention. So in some ways, you might argue that's a good thing. There's, they can just get on with the job. But on the other hand, we are, it's dragging on as, as feared in some ways. And here we are towards the end of November. It's important to stress we're at the end of the, the transitional period. The purpose of the transitional period was that there would be an agreement reached in 2018. You would then have 20 months in which you implement that agreement. And then the UK would sort of leave the transitional period at the end of December 2020. And we still don't have agreement. So it's less than five weeks away. And whatever deal is proposed still has to be implemented and transposed. So in some ways, we're a bit of chaos if there's a deal or even if there's no deal, because there's very, very little time for all of the the necessary measures to be put in place. So I, I think that's true across all sectors, including energy. Obviously, for some where you have the, the physical need for customs and those sort of duties, which clearly will apply to parts in the case of energy, but it's not in terms of the daily trade of the materials, as it were. It doesn't apply. But it's still front and centre of many people's minds. And I think the only reason it's not getting more attention is that COVID is just dominating political and, and media coverage. Absolutely. But what are the main sticking points at the moment? It seems that we are still from a high political level on a few issues, one of which is fisheries. And fisheries is a totemic issue, I would argue, from from a UK perspective. It it was held up as one of the key issues the fisher people of the UK would reclaim their sovereignty of the fish and that it was British fish in British waters. But obviously, nothing is as simple as that because it's, it's where do you sell the fish? You sell the fish in European markets. So there is backwards and forwards on this. And so there's this and there's questions still about application of of European laws in general. So obviously, one of the red lines that the UK government put forward was the European Court of Justice would no longer apply, but what will apply instead. So there are these two bigger areas that seem to be holding things up. And it was actually reported in the press in early November 
it was from the British press. So obviously there's there's twos and fro's and uh, there's obviously two sides of, of, of different arguments. But it was reported that the access to the European energy market was being held up as, a, as one of the negotiating tools around getting, from a Brussels perspective, from getting a, a good deal on fisheries. So there are different elements still in place. And so here we are, as I said, towards the end of November, and we still don't know the shape of that deal. From an energy perspective, probably there are, I would argue, two or three major issues that will, and in some ways, if, if I look back to the research that we did prior to the referendum, these are areas that we highlighted. There are areas that will still be affected. One that we've covered, and I think we've covered all of these past in, in the past podcasts, but one, it remains the interconnectors and the way in which, uh, from an electricity within the electricity market, these are operated. And it is likely, I would argue, that as the UK will remain outside of the internal energy market, that the electricity interconnectors will be operated less efficiently to the extent that there will be a slight, potential slight increase in UK bills. Some people are saying in one or 2%. Uh, so not huge. I would argue that that may increase, the economic impact may increase going forward as we use more interconnectors. And the reason that we might use more interconnectors is as you decarbonize, you need more flexible options to enable you to balance more power that you're getting from renewables, i.e. solar and wind. And so being able to operate the interconnectors flexibly is part of that efficiency question. So it's, it's about whether or not you are trading implicitly or explicitly whether or not you are just you're, you're separating the auctioning of the capacity versus the flows of electricity and outside of the EU those two functions will have to be separated so it just means that nobody seriously is suggesting that we will take an axe to the interconnectors and we won't continue to trade it's just that trade will be less efficient and I think that is still on the cards I think that's the most likely option at this stage I think the the extent to which everyone is talking about this being a very light deal, a trade deal rather than a, I'm not sure you'd express it like this, but I would it more a regulatory harmonization deal means that the UK will remain outside the internal energy market and therefore trading across the electricity interconnects will be less efficient. And possibly more costly as well. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, the modelling that people have done, and I haven't done it, but that is reported, it's in the bounds of one or 2%, which adds to bills. But if we look at, say, the currency impact, in terms of the the fluctuations between the euro and and the pound, there's probably be a, will probably be a bigger effect than maybe maybe that additional cost of trade. But as you say, no one's talking about turning off the gas taps or cutting off the flow of power to the UK. I mean, those energy flows will still occur both uh, in both directions. Yeah, no, absolutely. Trading will continue if there were tariffs placed upon it. If it got that to, to such an extent, it, they don't apply to electricity in any case in terms of WTO and in terms of gas. It's 0.7%. So it's not, there won't be significant in that regard. It's the regulatory issues. And so moving away from outside the internal energy market, moving away from EU regulations will make it more difficult for there to be efficient trade and the most efficient trade. And as I said, from a power sector perspective, that's more important because storage is more difficult. So therefore, you need more flexibility in the system. So yeah, that's a, a key area. If I could just say the other key area, which is, the European emissions trading system. So again, we are waiting and waiting and waiting for a decision from the UK government over whether or not the UK will have a domestic emissions trading system 
all will move towards a, a carbon tax. It was said to be the UK's desire to have a emissions trading system that was linked to the European system as of Switzerland. It said that the EU doesn't want that. It's saying that that's yeah, you're leaving the EU. You won't have a linked system. Don't know the extent to which that's a a nego- again questions of these negotiating or is this hard positions, but therefore the UK could have a standalone emissions trading system, or have a carbon tax. The devolved administrations in the UK, Scotland, Northern Ireland, actually Northern Ireland will probably remain part of the ETS, which is a separate issue. But Scotland in particular and Wales want to have a emissions trading system. The Energy Minister Kwasi Kwarteng was giving evidence to the Bayes Committee two weeks ago. And at that time, he continually refused to say that the UK would have an emissions trading system. He was saying all options remain on the table. He also said that the IT system had been tested and that it would be possible, even at this late stage, to put in place a trading system because there would be delayed registration. But again, it just comes back to this point of what was the point of the transition period if a month away from the, (laughs) the end date, we don't know what we're transitioning to. So yeah, ETS, I think, is is a really clear example. There is a binary choice. Do we have an emissions trading system or do we go to a, to a carbon tax? And nobody really knows. And that clearly affects the energy industry as it affects other industries. The energy industry is, is the largest in terms of emissions. And it needs to know how it's going to have to account for its, its carbon. Which way do you think the pendulum swinging? I mean, there's the Treasury in favour of a tax and uh, base more in favour of uh, an emissions trading system? I mean, Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That is what it is said is the case. I mean, I personally think that there is a greater simplicity in some degree of just having a taxation system, but it is less politically stable. And I think it's very easy for governments at a stroke of a pen to remove a tax if they think it's politically difficult for them to keep it or pull it down. If you're part of a, a trading system, that gives it great greater longevity. And and I think in that way, it's advantageous to, to have a, a, a trading system. But as you said, I think government is split and it's part of the negotiation. So we will have to see. This lack of clarity can't be helping companies and installations involved, you know, who emit. I mean, they you know, only days away, really, from the 1st of January, and they don't know what's going to happen uh, at the start of the year. I mean, this is not ideal situation for them. No, absolutely. And, and it, if registration is later, then it, it's not going to affect the day-to-day operations. But it's about bandwidth, isn't it, within the companies? You need to make plans. You need to develop. If you're continuing going backwards and forwards, is it this, is it that? Then you're taking up people's time when they, they could be working on other things. And I think that is a undoubtedly a problem for everyone. Another sticking point in the negotiations, as far as I can see, or has been reported, is the state aid principle. What's happening in here? And do you think, you know, does the UK want to have a much more looser principle? And how could that affect, for example, the subsidies towards renewable energy in the UK, vis-a-vis the European counterparts? I don't know if this is right. I have a bit of a perverse view on the implications of this. Because I think if you look at state aid decisions that while the UK was in the EU, it got its way. It is a, there's a legal framework, but there's a political interpretation of that. And if we look at Hinckley, for example, the UK government applied for state aid for Hinckley Point. 
and got it with very little requirement to change, I think everyone would argue that on Hinkley Point that they are paying over the odds for that power. I mean, it's £92 a megawatt hour at the time of agreement in 2013. It's going to end up costing vastly over and above what any other renewable or any renewable energy source is going to get in terms of subsidy. So there's a whole different question about the whether or not this is the right decision. <laughs> mm, mm. But the point is, it got approval for state aid. Um, so even that project that I think everyone would look at and goes, that's really expensive, was approved. And why was it approved? Even though a number of countries objected to it, Austria, etc., was partly it's political. And outside of the EU, I think we have less possibility of having state aid than inside. Because in terms of the energy sector, if at a later date we want to, to reintegrate and harmonise, it becomes, in terms of power trading, if we are hugely subsidising various elements of our electricity industry, then I, I think it would be more difficult for us to be integrated into the European grid. And that's something that has economic value. So I'm not sure it's, it's hugely beneficial. And as a government, we haven't really tended to be handing huge amounts of money to industries. There is a sort of overarching market view. I don't think it's a, a big issue. And I, as I said, I, maybe it's a bit perverse, but I, I do think we've, we're going to lose out in that regard rather than win. How about, I mean, you touched on Hinkley. How about the nuclear sector as a whole? I mean, the UK has already left Euratom. What are the implications of that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting example that over the last few years, I, I guess since the referendum, the government has been and the regulator have been quietly getting on with it. And for example, prior to... The decision to leave, the UK used Euratom, for example, for its, its nuclear safeguards inspectors. So under the international agreements, countries have to do their own monitoring to ensure that materials are not diverted from civilian uses to military. And these are called safeguards. And all of these were employed by Euratom. So the UK now has to have its own safeguards inspectors. And it has quietly gone around trading and employing them. So we have adequate safeguards according to the, the ONS, the Office of Nuclear Regulation, uh, to, ONR, sorry, to do that function. And we have put in place nuclear cooperation agreements with countries like the United States, etc. So in that regard, I think it's fine that that switch has occurred. I think probably the biggest area that nuclear will be impacted over will be research and development. So the UK is leaving the framework program, or well, the framework program is, is coming to an end. It finishes at the same time as we leave. So that Horizon 2020, the next one is called Horizon Europe, starts on the, the 1st of January 2021. Non-EU member states have an opportunity to join that, but you then pay. So the question is, will the UK want to continue to funnel its research through the EU? The strange thing is nuclear has its own. So there's all of the EU research programs, plus one that's specifically and separate for nuclear. Um, so in theory, the UK could join the nuclear one and not the, not the other one, or it could join the other one and not the nuclear one. If it joins the nuclear one, the big question is fusion. So there's the Cadarache, the fusion facility in France. The UK has the research facilities at JET, the Joint European Tourist and is buying into that whole process of the Lardic Cadarat ITR. So, yeah, I don't know what will happen, whether or not the UK will buy into the Euratom Framework Programme 
or it could even buy into just the ITR. There's the Japanese and the Chinese and the US just buy into that particular program. So it's, again, lots of uncertainty. I would just say it's probably going to be expensive just to buy into the nuclear research program, in particular because the cost of building the big fusion at ITER has gone up hugely. So if you buy a percentage and the, the cost has increased, then your cost may increase. So anyway, I think that's a, a very clear way in which the UK will have to decide what to do. Just worth flagging that we're still waiting on the white paper from the UK government. It's been promised for months and months and months. It's likely to come out. They said, again, the minister said, end of November, beginning of December. Within that will probably be guidance and or proposals for reg, uh, regulation around the regulated acid base. So the next next mechanism by which nuclear will be funded. And it's said that this will be cheaper than Hinkley. But again, we'll just have to wait and see what, what that says. So I think there's an overriding theme here, which is increase in costs or things are going to get more expensive. You know, maybe we can return to the regulated asset base and the way of funding nuclear at, an, at another date, uh, at another time, Anthony, because I think that's a whole, there's a whole, uh, whole the discussion in it in itself, really. What I was going to also touch on is, you know, the future of the, the city of London here and, and potentially because that's where a lot of these big European companies have their energy trading offices. And I think, is there a sense that the city of London's role as, as a centre for, for trading, for financial services, is, is under threat as well? You hear different things, don't you, from the city? I mean, I, I haven't heard so much since we've not been in, in, in physical <laughs> meetings. So, mm-hmm. um, But absolutely, at the end of last year, beginning of this year, there was yeah clear indications that many of the financial institutions would, over time, move out of the, the UK. I don't know if that's still the case or if those were just a, a selected few that I heard about. But I think there's no reason to assume that the energy sector will be any different. So the people that are financing, if finance in general is moving to Paris or on or Frankfurt, then, yeah, the energy sector will be affected in the same way. So, yeah, I I think it's a a clear danger. I think the only thing just to add is that the UK government is hosting COP26, so this big UN convention on climate change next year. These are normally annually. We haven't done one this year because of COVID. But this COP26 is is a significant one in terms of the importance they they go up and down. And the UK government, jointly hosting it with Italy, have put climate finance as, as one of its key pillars. And it really does want to retain the UK and London as a centre for, for climate finance, which includes green energy. So there's an additional incentive for the UK government to support these activities. So we'll, again, we, we will see what that entails. Is that a bit of fluff and and talk about in in relation to a convention and the UK hosting it, or are, is there real teeth behind it and real efforts to, to to make that happen? I mean, I think if we just sort of round off by talking about the negotiations themselves, Anthony, I think what is the end game here for for the UK? I mean, it seems to be you know what what's its objective here because it seems to be that these seem uh, you know a bit confused or mixed or contradictory at times. Yeah, I mean, I think the end game is from the government's perspective is clear. Is it is going to leave uh, the transition period at the end of December? But I mean, more in terms of a deal, deal or no deal. I mean, it seems to be, you know. You... Yeah, I mean, so I, I think that's a thing that's clear. The second thing is, will there be a light deal or skinny deal, as it's sometimes called, or no deal? And I think the objective is still for there to be a deal on both sides, because 
it's advantageous. And after all of this effort, for there not to be one, I think would be seen as a failure. But neither side is willing to have a deal at any cost. And I think that is what has hardened both in terms of the, the current administration, and they've made it very clear that that's the case. But I think also from an EU side, from the sense that I hear from Brussels is COVID and other things are dominating. And in some ways, Brexit is important, but yet it's not front and centre. It's sort of three, four, five down the list in terms of the things that need to be done. So if a deal's not done, so be it. So I, I think that makes it more difficult in that regard. But on the other hand, as I said, both parties do want a deal and there is one or two sticking points. And I, if I was a betting man, I would still say that there will be a deal and that it will occur. But I don't know if the odds are increasing or decreasing um, as we come to the <laughs> wire. Because the you know, in the sense the EU doesn't have the same deadline or a self-imposed deadline. I mean, it can continue negotiating into 2021, 2022 if it wants, whereas the UK government has set this 1st of Jan as, as a key end date. Yeah, there is also a political end date within the EU in terms of the research programmes. And it's not just the research programme that finishes, the whole EU budget has, okay. has come mm. to the end of its cycle. So if the U, because the UK in the transition period is still contributing to the EU finance. So if it carries on into January, then we need to be part of that new cycle. So I, that's why I think absolutely the transition period will end. There may be a period of grace, for example, or we won't enforce it quite so strictly for a number of months mm. or who mm. knows, maybe even years in or, because yeah, current situation, people don't want more headaches. People may turn a blind eye, I guess, to certain issues, but not others. I don't think anyone is thinking that as of the 1st of January, things will be normal and it, it'll just be a, a bit of a grey area. <laughs> I think absolutely things will change. We'll have to see how how smooth that transition is because I think a lot of people are very nervous that it's not going to be that smooth because we haven't had the time to prepare. Yeah, absolutely. I think there'll be, there's um, you know certainly a few twists and turns ahead. In the meantime, you know the companies that are behind the, the, the interconnectors or uh, you know, emitting carbon in the UK, they will have to wait and see for further details. Yeah, absolutely. So there was one press report, because the European Parliament has to ratify the deal. So they were talking about the European Parliament having to sit on the 28th of December, which um, <laughs> wouldn't, I guess, <laughs> wouldn't, yeah, increase the, the goodwill that exists toward the UK, uh, were yeah. we to ask all the parliamentarians to come back. But anyway, so yeah. Especially, it, if, it was in, especially if it was in Strasbourg. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it's strange times for lots of reasons, but in particular, yeah, we, we're still not sure where we are. Thank you very much, Anthony, for sharing your views on this. And, and, and I'm sure it's, uh, it's a topic we'll return to maybe in a, in a different way in the coming months. Thank you very much indeed. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. That's about all from the Montel Weekly podcast this week, listeners. You can follow the podcast on our own Twitter account, where you can direct any suggestions, questions, or ideas for potential guests. You can also send us an email to podcast at montelnews.com. Lastly, remember to keep up to date with all that's happening in the energy markets on Montel News. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcast from, and please rate us and review us if you can. That only helps us to improve. Thank you, and goodbye.